The following program is a presentation of Grace Communion International and Grace Communion Seminary and is made possible by generous donations from viewers like you. On this episode of Your Included, theologian Dr. Garrett Scott Dawson talks about Christ's eternal humanity. Our host is Dr. J. Michael Fizell. Well, Garrett, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here. Let's begin by talking about Jesus' incarnation, and especially his incarnation after his death and resurrection. A lot of people think of Jesus as being God in the flesh while he's here on earth, walking and talking and breathing, but once he's crucified and resurrected and ascended, and at the right hand of God, we don't think of it quite the same way. We think of him now he's fully God again, but not fully human as well. What's wrong with that? Well, I think you're exactly right, Mike. A lot of us have a kind of drop-in theory of the Incarnation, that uh, the eternal Son of God came down among us and for 33 years he was really with us, but it's kind of like he was slumming. And when he, he got that done with, he just went back up to heaven and unzipped his skin suit and, and was just God again. I think it's also hard for us to imagine how this could happen, that, that Jesus could go up to heaven and still be in our flesh. We almost get a kind of Monty Python cartoon feeling of Jesus going up on the clouds like a Rembrandt painting, waving his hand and saying goodbye and taking off in a, a heavenly spaceship. We know in our bones that, that it can't be that, so we just wonder how could Jesus still be in the flesh and yet have gone to heaven to the right hand of God. And yet, if we have this drop-in view of the Incarnation, we miss out on so much of the good stuff. Um, we miss out, really, on, on the rest of the story. So what, uh, what are the implications of that? If, if, if Jesus continues to be God in the flesh for us now, how does that change our life as a Christian? Sure, it's really important. I mean, the first thing to think about is that it means that Jesus' history, Jesus' history goes on. It's not just that he died and he rose and that's it, but that by ascending into heaven, he is still continuing to be the God-man. He's still holding our humanity uh, next to his Godhead. He's still uniting himself to us. Um, and that has huge implications for us. Uh, on, on the one hand, you think about our eternal life. Uh, Paul writes in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, that he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. The Christian hope of resurrection in the body, of, of eternal life to come, that you still get to be you and I still get to be me, is all grounded in the fact that Jesus retains his body, resurrected, transformed, glorified, but still, as John Knox said, the self-same body in which he was Crucified, dead, buried, and risen is the same body he ascended in. So in terms of what happens to us in the future, that's really important. Another implication, though, I think, is that it has to do with our salvation. Um, often we think of, of our salvation as simply a, a transaction that occurred on the cross, and that's true. Christ took our sins upon himself, particularly uh, on the cross when the sin of the world was upon him. But a, a deeper understanding, a full biblical understanding, is that Jesus himself is our atonement. He's the one that reconciles God and humanity 
by being in himself the one who brings those two together. So our atonement continues because Christ's incarnation continues. So we're having an, a moment-by-moment, everyday, continuing, intimate relationship with him. Exactly. And the implications of that for how we live. Oh, well, it's wonderful, I think, to think that we have a man in heaven uh, because Christ has gone up to, into the Holy of Holies, to the Father's right hand, but he hasn't gone just as a spirit. He's gone taking our humanity. Uh, like Star Trek used to say, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Well, he's really done it. Um, <laughs> as the ancient fathers used to say, now dust sits on the throne of heaven. Uh, Jesus has gone up to the, to the Father's right hand, taking us with him. Uh, in his person, we have direct access to the very throne of God. Now, you mentioned the Holy of Holies, and of course, you're referring to uh, ancient Israel and to the, the tabernacle first, and then later the temple. And once a year, the high priest, only once a year, the high priest is right. able to go in there. And in your book, you, you draw an analogy between that and Christ ascending. Can you elaborate on that? Oh, well, sure. The, the, the ritual of atonement on, on the Yom Kippur, that day of atonement, the high priest would prepare to bring a sacrifice on behalf of all the people. And as you look at the details of that in Exodus and Leviticus, you note that the high priest would get dressed with a breastplate that had inscribed upon it the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. That, in a sense, meant that he was writing onto his very heart uh, the names of God's people, and he was, in a sense, bearing all of Israel with him as he prepared to go into the Holy of Holies. Now, he would go in uh, that, on that day. He would first prepare himself by, by washing, putting on the ritual garments, and then by offering a sacrifice of sin for himself and his family, and then finally offering the sacrifice of sin on behalf of the people. He would bring the blood of the goat into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle it on the mercy seat, and thereby make intercession, confessing the people's sins, acting in their name and on their behalf. Then when it was done, he would come out and place his hands on the scapegoat, the other goat that carried away the sins of the people, and then he would bless them and declare them to be forgiven. So on that one day, the high priest enacted an atonement that God had provided for the people by acting on behalf of the people, bringing their sins to God, and acting on behalf of, of God, the Lord Yahweh, bringing his forgiveness to the people. Now the parallels with Jesus are just almost breathtaking to think about. Uh, the idea that Jesus, uh, in fulfilling the office of our high priest, got dressed in a garment, and that garment was our flesh. He dressed in our humanity, and just as the high priest carried the names of the people over his heart, Jesus, in wearing our flesh, actually wrote the name of all humanity into himself. He bore us in himself. And then uh, he didn't have to go into, into the temple, but in going to the cross, Jesus himself became both the priest and the victim. He was the offerer of the sacrifice, but that sacrifice was himself. And so Jesus, in making that perfect atonement, then was able to go into the Holy of Holies, uh, bearing our humanity. Now, of course, the priest would come out from the Holy of Holies and bless the people. Jesus has not yet returned from the Father's immediate presence. He's in heaven and we are waiting for his return. Nevertheless, he's blessed us because he's sent the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Father passed to him the blessed Spirit whom he poured out upon us, who unites us to Jesus, 
and causes us then in him to have that direct access to the throne of God. What are the implications of the ascension in terms of Jesus being Lord? Well, in his ascension, Jesus has, has triumphed. I mean, in his resurrection, he broke the power of, of death, but if it just ended there, Jesus would have had to either die again like Lazarus did, or he'd still be somewhere in the world that we could go to him and talk to him, but we'd have to journey to him and he would only be limited in the access that, that people would have. Uh, the ascension is really necessary to complete that story that, that Jesus who rose went up to heaven and that signals his triumph as, as Lord and King of all. Um, he is now the one, as Revelation tells us, who holds the keys of death and Hades in his hands. Uh, he is uh, the Lord of the kings of earth, as Revelation tells us. Uh, he is the ruler of, of all things. That means that we have a pretty, pretty high claim on who Jesus is and a real understanding that um, all knowledge of God now centers in the person of Christ, and that all truth about who God is uh, is shown to us uh, in the face of Jesus Christ. You mentioned the um, clothing that he takes as being our humanity the, as a high priest going into the Holy of Holies in the ascension, coming, returning to the right hand of the Father. Isn't that, aren't you implying that, the, that he's taking sinful human flesh, that he didn't take perfect sinless flesh, but our actual human condition? Well, in the incarnation, Jesus was, was born of Mary and received in that sense he came from, from the seed of, of Adam's race, the race that had fallen. Uh, and within the virgin's womb, he was joined with the Holy Spirit to become both God and man. And so he took to himself that which we really are. It was a real humanity. Uh, he took it uh, in union with the Holy Spirit, so it was a humanity he wore sinlessly. But I do think often we tend to think of Jesus as a kind of superman, that he wasn't really touched with mortal frailty like the rest of us are, that he didn't really know what it's like to live in this broken world, uh, to live uh, among people who feel like God has forsaken them, uh, to know the difficulty of temptation. But I, I believe that Scripture teaches that, that Jesus truly was tempted in all points as we are. Uh, he really could have uh, gone into sin. He really knew what it was to wrestle against, against temptation. He knew how it is to be with us uh, in a lost and, and forsaken humanity, which he wore in perfect holiness and sinlessness. The fact that he took on a real humanity, our real humanity then, uh, how does that speak to an individual who is a sinner like you and me and like everybody else listening to the program, uh, at our worst moment when we want to go to the throne of grace but we feel so unworthy that we'd rather just go bury our head in the pillow, how does that speak to us? Well, the implications are, are very strong for we who are the lost and wandering sheep. Uh, we're the, the prodigal children and feel that we've, we've wandered way outside of the Father's grace and care. But the good news in the Incarnation is that uh, our Father loved us so much that He sent His Son all the way into the world, all the way into our humanity, where we are, uh, sent to find us in our lost and forsaken condition and to join Himself to us 
in the midst of our brokenness, our lostness, and to heal us from within. He didn't just come to tell us that we ought to be better, or he didn't even come just with with news that, that God sort of likes us. He came to say, I love you so much, I will become what you are and heal that from the inside out by joining it to myself, by cleansing it, by offering to God the obedience that you owe to him but you can't give on your own. I will do that from inside your humanity. I will live the relationship of love and fidelity that I've had with my Father from all eternity. I'll do that now from within your midst. And if you are then joined to me, partaking of me, you can have that intimacy too. So the comfort there is uh, often people think that Jesus is so so far above me, so superhuman, that we look for another mediator. We look for another advocate. We might pray to a saint or, or ask someone that we know is holy to, to try to help us. In reality, we have uh, the most wonderful human being of all, a man who was touched with our infirmities, who knows in his own flesh and bones how it is with us, who says, I am taking your cause even now to my Father. Uh, I love you so much that I not only became what you are and healed it, but I kept it joined to me into eternity. Uh, I think Bart says that uh, in the ascension we realize that Jesus' flesh is a garment which he does not put off. Uh, it's a choice that God made to hold us to himself that he will never let go. And don't a lot of us want to wait until we are behaving better and we feel better about ourselves before we'll go to the Father, go to prayer. In other words, we, we put it off uh, until we can just get a little bit more righteous in the, with the idea that if we're a little more righteous, God's more likely to hear our prayer. Oh, sure. And I think our adversary really wants to keep whispering to us that you're not worthy yet. You're not ready yet. God doesn't want you yet. And we feel like we have to compose our own righteousness. Now, the news about that is both horrible and terrific. I mean, the horrible news is if I had all eternity in myself to try to get myself together, I couldn't do it. I cannot on my own ever be worthy of God's love. I can never have a claim on him that says, now you must bless me and pay attention to me because I have achieved righteousness. It's just not in me. Uh, my sinful nature brings me down and, and will forever. But the terrific news is that Christ has done what I could not do for myself. He's lived that life of obedience and communion with the Father and joined to him. In him is the most marvelous acceptance and worthiness. Uh, I think that we're Calvin and the Reformers always tell us, don't look at yourself, look away from yourself and look to Jesus. My standing with God is never in myself, it's in Christ. He's the worthy one. He's the righteous one. Now, the news is the Holy Spirit, as we hear the word proclaimed, joins us to Jesus so that all that is his becomes ours, and we can rejoice in that. When the accuser comes and says, as our friend Baxter Kruger you know, likes to quote, you are not, Mike, you're not worthy, you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, we don't answer him and say, oh, yes, I am. Look at this day and that day. We answer him by saying, look at Jesus. Look at my advocate. He is worthy, and by the power of his Spirit, I am in him. That's a huge comfort to me. 
in one sense, he's even more ready to hear us and wanting us present when we feel the worst. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the wonderful uh, Christmas hymn, Joy to the World, says he comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. Uh, Jesus has come to dig underneath uh, the thorn of, of the curse that came upon us uh, when Adam and Eve were cursed, to dig it out and remake our humanity. And when we're in the far country, we may know that we have one who's come on the great search and rescue mission for us. He's come to find his lost sheep and to carry us on his shoulders uh, all the way back up to his Father's throne. And that's where the ascension, I think, ties this all together. He didn't just restore us to kind of a neutral place to say, okay, Mike, I took care of your past sins. Now it's, you got a clean slate. Try to do as well as you can. He actually says, no, Mike, I want to take you beyond this earth all the way to the, into the heavenlies where you can be seated with me and all that I have is yours. Uh, the great church fathers have said that what we lost in Adam, we've gained even more in Christ. Uh, and taking our humanity back to the Father, uh, he's, he's given us every spiritual blessing. Now, we don't have a lot of confidence in that, because especially it seems, as a pastor, you well know that so often what we do is think, if I could get enough people praying for me, especially righteous people, people right, I consider right. to be pretty good standing with God, if I can get enough of them praying for me, then God will finally hear those prayers and move on my behalf and do something to help me in, in my situation. And we discount the fact that our prayers matter because we know our, our situation, our sins and our weaknesses, and we figure our prayers don't matter. And so we want to amass prayer, like you mentioned, uh, right. prayers of saints, if, if we believe that saints pray for us who are dead, right. or just people we know, our other pastors. So we like to go to the, to the church and ask, could you get the congregation to pray for me? Or in the case of a denomination, you want the whole denomination praying for you, as many right. righteous voices as possible. What could you say to someone to help them understand that sure. God wants to hear from them. I think the most important thing to say is from 1 John that we have an advocate before the Father, even Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Or to go to Hebrews chapter 7 to realize that Jesus ever lives to intercede for us. We have an advocate who is praying for us right now. He's gone into heaven to prepare a place for us. And part of that preparation is he's constantly uh, presenting our case before his Father, saying, Father, this one is in me, and I have cleansed him, and I am laboring with you and the blessed Holy Spirit to conform him more and more to our image. Uh, but I present my righteousness on his behalf. So there's no such thing as us praying on our own by ourselves. That's correct. I mean, and Calvin was very strong on this, that if we think we can approach God in our own strength, uh, we are lost. But in Christ, when we come in Christ, we are already immediately in the presence of the Father. Tom Torrance talks about how our prayers are a participation, really, in the prayers of Christ on our behalf. It's not us praying that God the Father is just going to hear a prayer from us because we know our prayers are kind of poor prayers most sure. of the time. But we can have confidence that our prayer is being taken up by Christ, redeemed and healed, 
and presented to the Father as his prayer. Absolutely. The, the Torrances were, were so strong in, in saying, we want to pray, we try to pray, but we can't pray, and we despair. But when we look away from ourselves to Jesus, we see that he is praying in our name and on our behalf. He's taking our pitiful prayers, he's cleansing them and making them his own, offering them to his Father, and the Father who delights to answer the prayers of the Son is then blessing us back through the Son in, in the power of the Holy Spirit. So our prayers are getting a whole lot farther than we might ever think um, if we just came in our own righteousness or worthiness. As a pastor, there are things you want your congregation to hear about, know about. And if there were one piece of, let's say, piece of advice or let's say maybe even a, a wish list that you could give all pastors that you wish everybody could hear from their pastors uh, from week to week, what would it be? The concept of the wonderful exchange uh, that, that Calvin spoke about is something that always moves me, particularly when I meet my congregation at the communion table. Uh, and in a sense, speaking in Christ's name as we offer the bread and the cup, which you know become through the Holy Spirit, his body and his blood, uh, we're saying to our people, here is the great exchange. In some sense, God is the all-time most extravagant and, and worst trader because what he does is he says, I want to swap you. Trade me your sin and I will trade you my holiness. Trade me your anxiety. Give that to me and I will give you back my peace. Trade me your doubt and I will give you my faith on your behalf. We come to that table of grace and the wonderful exchange occurs whereby Christ asks for what is ours, you know, pitiful, sin-stained, lost, confused, doubting, and he takes it all to himself as precious. He, he drinks it in that, that cup of, of wrath of, that he drank on our behalf and then slides the cup back to us and we find that it's filled with the wonderful wine of communion. He gives back to us forgiveness and grace and healing. If our people could understand that when we meet Jesus, uh, he is trading uh, his life for our death and his forgiveness for our sin, I think we'd be transformed. Well, most of the time when people go to church, what don't they wind up hearing uh, or coming away with the idea that I'm not good enough, I'd better behave better or, or God's going to reject me? Well, in, in often that would be the sin in some sense of, of the conservative churches, which would be to to, to pile upon us more shoulds and oughts, uh, which only make us cast back upon ourselves, and we can't, we can't bear that up. If we could hear how Christ has taken our burdens from us and, and taken all of that away from us and that living in him, we may leave the church skipping and dancing and rejoicing that the word from the Lord is, I have included you in my grace, I've included you in my fellowship, uh, I want you to rejoice in the eternal life I have for you, church might be a very different place. Now, of course, the other thing that happens is, is the opposite, and that's that we come to church hoping to get a little help so that we can continue to manage God on our own terms and be comforted in the life we've chosen for ourselves. A lot of mainstream America, I think, really wants to view God as the one who's supposed to help me live out the life I've dreamed for myself kind of a health-wealth gospel approach? Well, in some sense, or just that, that my high achievement, my, my constant busyness, my pressing, 
is really what counts and that God must be pleased with me if I'm living the good life. So you're looking at a validation of right. whatever your lifestyle happens to be. Exactly. And there's a sense in which coming to hear of the all-embracing grace of Jesus actually devalidates the list that I've stacked up to say, look, Mike, I'm a good person. I live the good life. I, I got educated. I travel. Uh, my house is, is looking prettier. You should value me. And the gospel says none of that matters. Not only does your sin not get you, you know, keep you from God, I mean, your sin keeps you from God, but your righteousness also doesn't count before God. It's all in Christ. And in that sense, the news of, of the ascended Christ who has this new humanity for us is a challenge to contemporary American life because it says not only are you relieved of the burden of you can't get there by yourself, but you are commanded to stop trying to get there by yourself. Uh, our idolatry that I'm the one that achieves and makes and creates my life is torn down by a Lord who says, all of the grace is in me. You've got to leave off yourself and find it in Christ. Is there also a sense of um, that, that God has, is blessing me and must be with me since things are going well for me, since uh, I'm making enough money and I'm, I'm doing well and I've, and I've accumulated um, physical things around me and a certain amount of security and so on. Therefore, uh, I must be doing something right. I mean, I hear this, if anything is going well, well, you must be doing something right since God is bringing these blessings to you. Sure, and it's, it's a very easy way to think. And, and in my heart of hearts, I think I probably think that too. If I'm healthy, it's because God has favored me. And if I have means, it's because I must be living a pretty good life. And the life. opposite, if something bad happens or a loss or a tragedy of some kind, I must have done something wrong because God has brought this upon me to punish me. Exactly. And I think as we're talking, we're in, our nation is in some pretty uncertain economic times and people are being drawn up short realizing maybe I'm not favored after all. Um, is God against me? Have, have I somehow... Have I somehow sinned? And often, I think, sadly, in the Western church, we've got this all confused. We don't expect that suffering is the normal state of life in this world. But the fact is, we are called to join the fellowship of Christ's sufferings as well as the fellowship of his resurrection. And indeed, when we're fulfilling the mission, the ascended Christ uh, held on to our humanity which means this is the world that he loves and died for, which also means he sent the church into this very same world to give our lives away as he did, to care for his poor, uh, to bring about justice for, for the oppressed, to share this gospel even when sometimes people are, are hostile to it. And we often think, well, my job is I've been blessed and I've been saved and I know this grace, so I'll just get my little pile of blessings and withdraw and be comfortable and suffering should never touch me. The truth is, all of God's greatest servants suffered not because he was cursing them, but because they joined the fellowship of love's suffering. Love suffers for the sake of the least and the lost, and, and we're called to that. Well, we're out of time. We've got uh, about 10 seconds left. So could I ask you to just give our viewers one thing you'd like them to know about God? in that 10 seconds. 
Well, the greatest thing to know about God is that he loves you enough to become what you are and to hold that in himself forever. The incarnation goes on and on, which means Christ has a hold of you into eternity. You've been watching You're Included, a production of Grace Communion International.